Chapter 13 of the Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. The Fall of Granada. The capture of Boabdil by the Christian sovereigns was a fatal blow to the Moorish power. The loss of the prince himself was the smallest part of the misfortune. Boabdil, though he could show true Moorish courage in the battlefield, was a weak and vacillating man, and was perpetually oppressed by the conviction that destiny was against him. He was known as Azogoibi, the unlucky, and he was ever lamenting his evil star, against which he felt it was useless to struggle. Verily, he would exclaim, after every reverse, it was written in the book of fate that I should be unlucky, and that the kingdom should come to an end under my rule. Boabdil could easily be spared, but innocuous as he was in himself, he might become dangerous in the hands of a clever adversary. An event showed that Boabdil's subjection to Ferdinand contributed as much as any other cause to the overthrow of the Moorish power in Andalusia. The Catholic sovereigns received him with honor at Cordova, and by friendly persuasion and arguments drawn from his own desperate situation and the strongly contrasted successes of the Christians, they induced him to become their instrument and vassal. As soon as they felt that they had completely mastered their tool, the politic king and queen suffered him to return to Granada, where his father, Abul Hassan, once more held the fortress of the Alhambra. Favored by his old supporters in Albaicin quarter of the city, Boabdil managed to effect an entrance and to seize the citadel or keep called Alcazaba, whence he carried on guerrilla warfare with his father in the opposite fort. The quarrel was further embittered by the rivalry between the rivals of Abul Hassan. Aisha, the mother of Boabdil was intensely jealous of one Christian lady, Soraya, whom Abul Hassan loved far beyond his other wives, and the chief courtiers took up the cause of either queen. Thus arose the celebrated antagonism between the Zegris, a Berber tribe from Aragon, who supported Aisha, and the Abenseragis, or Beni Seraj, an old Cordovan family, which ended in the celebrated massacre of the Abenseragis in the palace of Alhambra, though whether Boabdil was the author of this butchery is still a matter of doubt. Supported by the Zegris, Boabdil for some time held his ground in the citadel. Old Abul Hassan was too strong for him, however, and the son was soon compelled to take refuge in Almeria. Henceforward there were always two kings of Granada, Boabdil on the one hand always unlucky, whether in policy or battle, and despised by good Moors as the vassal of the common enemy. On the other, Abul Hassan, or rather his brother, Ezagal, the valiant, for the old king did not long survive the misfortunes which his son's rebellion had brought upon the kingdom. He lost his sight, and soon afterwards died not without suspicion of foul play. 
In Ezagal we see the last great Moorish king of Andalusia. He was a gallant warrior, a firm ruler, and a resolute opponent of the Christians. Had he been untrammeled by his nephew, Granada might have remained in the hands of the Moors during his life, though nothing could have prevented the final triumph of the Christians. Instead of delaying that victory, however, the kings of Granada did their best to further and promote it by their internal disputes. King Deus vult perdere prius dementat. When the gods have decreed that a king must fall, they fill him first with folly. Such a suicidal mania now invaded the minds of the rulers of Granada, at a time when every man they could gather together was needed to repel the invasion of the Christians. They wasted their strength in ruinous struggles with each other, and one would even intercept the other's army when it was on the march against the common enemy. The people of Granada, divided into various factions, aided and abetted the jealousy of their sovereigns, always fickle and prone to any change, good or bad, the Granadinos loved nothing better than to set up and put down kings. So long as a ruler was fortunate in war and brought back rich spoils from the territories of the infidels, they were well pleased to submit to his sway, but the moment he failed, they shut the gates in his face and shouted, Long live the other, who might be Boabdil or Ezagal, or anyone else who happened for the moment to possess Granada's changeable affections. When Boabdil the unlucky was doing his best to foil the efforts of his brave uncle Ezagal, the Christians were gradually narrowing the circle that they had drawn round the doomed kingdom. City after city fell into their hands. Alora and other forts were taken in 1484 with the aid of Ferdinand's heavy Lombards, a new and destructive form of artillery. Coin, Cartama, Ronda followed in the next year, not without some vigorous reprisals on the part of Ezagal, who caught the knights of Calatrava in an ambush and effected a terrible slaughter. Still, the cause of Christian conquest steadily continued. Losha fell in 1486, when an English earl, Lord Scales, with a company of English archers, led the attack. Iora and Moclin succumbed. The right eye of Granada is extinguished, cried the Moors in consternation. The Catholic sovereigns have clipped the right wing of the Moorish vulture, was the Christian comment. The western part of the kingdom had indeed been absorbed by Ferdinand and his intrepid consort. The pomegranate, Granada, was being devoured grain by grain. Ezagal became unpopular with the people, who could not brook disappointment, and they received Boabdil once more into their city. He found it hard work to maintain his foothold there against his uncle, but with the help of some troops furnished by the Christians, he contrived to stand a while at bay. Just then Ferdinand was laying siege to Velez, near Malaga, and the news roused the strongest feeling of indignation in Granada for Malaga was the second city of the kingdom. Its site, shut in by mountains and the sea, its vineyards and orchards, gardens and pastures, 
and its fine defensive works made it the right hand of the Moslem kingdom. If Malaga fell, then the Arambra must also pass into the hands of the eaters of swine flesh. Moved by the general emotion and ever ready to break lance with the invader, Ezagal boldly led his troops to the relief of Velez. He knew that his treacherous nephew was in Granada, ready to take advantage of his absence to recover his old supremacy, but Ezagal was rightly called the Valiant. He put aside all thoughts of himself and set out to save Malaga. But he had to deal with the shrewd opponents, and while he took his measures for a combined attack from the besieged and the relieving army, Ferdinand intercepted his messages and countermined his plans. One night the people of Velez saw the host of Ezagal gathered in long array upon the neighboring heights. The next morning not a soul remained. The night attack had failed, and the relieving army had melted like the mist before the resolute onslaught of the Marquess of Cadiz. When the dejected straggler began to steal sadly into the gates of Granada, the populace easily threw off their old allegiance, and breaking into furious indignation against Ezagal, denounced him as a traitor, and proclaimed Boabdil king in his stead. As Ezagal drew near to the gates of Granada, with the remnants of his army, he found them closed in his face, and looking up, he saw the standard of Boabdil floating above the towers of the Alhambra. His city, always intolerant of failure, had shut its heart against him in his day of trouble, so he turned away and established his court at Guadix. The siege of Malaga itself was now begun, but the strength of its defenses rendered it a formidable obstacle. It was surrounded by mountains, defended by stout walls, overshadowed by the citadel and the still loftier Gibraltaro, or Hill of the Beacon, whence its garrison could pour down missiles upon the Christians in the plain. Moreover, the defense was led by Ezegri, an heroic Moor who had been Alcaide of Ronda, and could not forgive the Christians for wrenching that famous rocky fortress from him, and who now inspired the citizens and his followings of African troops with the spirit of daring and endurance which the Catholic sovereigns in vain tried to subdue. Commanding the Gibraltaro, he was able to defend the city in spite of the peaceful inclination of its trading classes. When the king attempted to bribe him, he dismissed the messenger with courteous disdain, and when the city was summoned to surrender, and the merchant eagerly acquiesced, Ezegri said, I was here not to surrender but to defend. Ferdinand concentrated his attack upon the Gibraltaro. His terrible cannon, known as the Seven Sisters of Jimenez, wrapped the castle in smoke and flame. Night and day, the artillery blazed to and fro. The Christians attempted to take the place by assault, but Ezegri and his undaunted followers poured boiling pitch and rosin upon the assailants, hurled huge stones upon their heads as they climbed the ladders, and transfixed them with well-aimed arrows from the tower above, till the storming party was compelled to retire with heavy loss. 
mines were tried with better success, and the sum of the fortification was blown up with gunpowder for the first time in Spanish history, but still the garrison held out. The chivalry of Spain was now gathered about the walls of Malaga. Queen Isabella herself came, and her presence infused a fresh spirit of enthusiasm into her knights and soldiers. Wooden towers were brought to bear upon the battlement. A testudo of shields were used as a cover for the men who undermined the walls, but Ezegri was still unsubdued. At last there appeared a worse enemy than cannon and gunpowder. Famine began to distress the people of Malaga, and they were more inclined now to listen to the pacific policy of the traders than to the bold counsels of the commander. Help from without was not to be expected. Ezagal had indeed once more made an effort to save the besieged city. He had gathered together what was left of his army and gone forth from Guadix to succor Malaga, but his ill-starred nephew again proved his title to the name Unlucky, for in a fit of insensate jealousy he ordered out the troops of Granada, intercepted Ezagal's small force as it was on its way to Malaga, and dispersed it. Ezegri's last sally was repulsed with terrible slaughter. The people were starving, and mothers cast their infants before the governor's halls, lamenting that they had no more food and could not bear to hear their children's cries. The city at last surrendered, and Ezegri, who still held out in the Gibral Faro, was forced by his soldiers to open the gates and was rewarded for his heroism by being cast into a dungeon never to be heard of again. The long siege was over. The famished people fought with one another to buy food from the Christians. The African garrison, who still kept their proud look, though worn and enfeebled with their long struggle and privations, were condemned to slavery. The rest of the inhabitants were permitted to ransom themselves, but on these insidious terms that all their goods should at once be paid over to the king as a part payment, and then if, after eight months, the rest were not forthcoming, they should all be made slaves. They were numbered and searched, and then sent forth. Then might be seen old men and helpless women and tender maidens, some of high birth and gentle condition, passing through the streets, heavily burdened toward the Alcazaba. As they left their homes, they smote their breasts and wrung their hands and raised their weeping eyes to heaven in anguish. And this is recorded as their plaint. O Malaga, city so renowned and beautiful, where now is the strength of thy castle? Where the grandeur of thy towers? Of what avail have been thy mighty walls for the protection of thy children? They will bewail each other in foreign lands, but their lamentation will be the scoff of the stranger. The poor people were sent to Seville, where they were kept in servitude till the eight months had expired, and then, since they had no money to pay the remainder of their ransoms, they were one and all condemned to their perpetual slavery, to the number of 15,000 souls. Ferdinand's ungenerous ingenuity was thus rewarded. The western part of the kingdom of Granada was now entirely in the hands of the Christians. 
the famous Moorish fortresses of the Serrania de Ronda and the beautiful city of Malaga held Christian garrisons. Granada itself was in the hands of Boabdil, who hastened to congratulate his liege lord and lady upon their triumph over Malaga. But in the east, old Ezagar still turned the bold front to the invader and gathered around his standard all that remained of patriotism among the disheartened Moors. From Jaen in the north to Almeria, the chief port of Andalusia on the Mediterranean coast, his sway was undisputed. He held the important cities of Guadix and Baza, and within his dominion the rugged reaches of the Alpusharas mountains, the cradle of a hardy and warlike race of mountaineers, sheltered countless valleys, fed with cool waters from the Sierra Nevada's snowy peaks, where flocks and herds, vines, oranges, pomegranates, citrons, and mulberry trees provided wealth for a whole province. In 1488, Ferdinand turned his victorious arms toward this undisturbed portion of the Moorish dominion. Assembling his troops at Murcia, he marched westwards into Ezagar's territory and attacked Baza. Here his advance was sternly checked. Ezagar's hand had not lost its ancient cunning, and he drove the Christians back from the walls of Baza and began to retaliate by making raids into their own country. In the following year, Ferdinand, nothing disheartened, renewed his attack on Baza, but instead of sacrificing his troops in vain assaults, he laid waste the fertile country round about and so starved the city into submission. It took six months, and the Christians lost 20,000 men from disease and exposure, joined to the accidents of war, but in December 1489, Baza finally submitted, and with the loss of this cheap city, Ezagar's power was broken. The castles that dominated the fastness of the Alpusharas yielded, one by one, to Ferdinand prestige or gold. Ezagar perceived that the rule of the Moors was doomed. Reluctantly he gave in his submissions to Ferdinand, and surrendered the city of Almeria. He was allotted a small territory in the Alpusharas with the title of King of Andarax. He did not long remain in the land of his lost glory and present shame. He sold his lands and went to Africa, where he was cruelly blinded by the Sultan of Fez, and passed the remainder of his days in misery and destitution, a wandering outcast, pitied by those who could recognize the hero in a mendicant's wrecks or read the badge which he wore, whereon was written in the Arabic character, This is the hapless king of Andalusia. Granada alone remained to the Moors. Boabdil had been well pleased to see his old rival Ezagal dethroned by their Catholic majesties. Henceforth, he cried to the messenger who brought him the news, Let no man call me Zogoibi, for my luck has turned, to which the other made answer that the wind which blew in one quarter might soon blow in another, and the king had best to reserve his rejoicing for more settled weather. Boabdil, though he heard his name cursed in the streets of his capital as a traitor in league with the infidels, indulged in blind confidence now that his detested uncle was powerless 
as the vassal of Ferdinand and Isabella, he believed that he had nothing to fear. He had forgotten that when, in his fatuous hatred of Ezzagal, he incited the Christian sovereigns to subdue his rival's dominions, he had engaged by treaty that should Ferdinand succeed in reducing Ezzagal's country with the cities of Guadix and Almeria, he would on his part surrender Granada. He was not, however, long left without a spur to his memory. Ferdinand wrote to inform him that the conditions named in the treaty had been fulfilled on his side and demanded the surrender of Granada in accordance with the terms then laid down. Boabdil in vain implored delay. The king was determined and threatened to repeat the example of Malaga if the capital were not immediately given up. Boabdil did not know what to reply, but the people of Granada, led by Musa, a brave and gallant knight, took the matter into their own hands and told his Catholic majesty that if he wanted their arms, he must come and take them. When these bold words were said, the beautiful Vega of Granada was waving with crops and fruits. It had recovered from the devastation which accompanied the struggle between Ezagal and Boabdil, and the splendid harvest was awaiting the sickle. Ferdinand saw his opportunity, and adopting his usual tactics, poured his troops, 25,000 strong, over the Vega, and for 30 days abandoned it to their destroying hands. When he turned back toward Cordova, the Vega was one great expanse of desolation. It was enough for one season, yet once more was the cruel work of destruction carried out in that year of grace, 1490. Boabdil had at last been roused to a desperate courage. Guided by Musa, whose metal was of the finest, he girded on his armor and began to carry the war into the enemy's quarters. The Moors roundabout, who had given in their submission to Ferdinand, were heartened by the sight of the king of Granada once more on the warpath and hastily consigning their promises to the winds rose up and joined him it really seemed as if the good old days of Granada was returning some fortresses were recovered from the Christians and the Moorish army ravaged the borders it was but the last gleam of light before the final setting of the sun in April 1491 Ferdinand and Isabella set forth upon their annual crusade, resolved not to return till Granada was in their power. The king led an army of 40,000 foot and 10,000 horse, with such commanders as the famous Ponce de Leon, Marquess of Cadiz, the Marquess of Santiago, the Counts of Tendilla and Cabra, the Marquess of Vienna, and the redoubtable knight Don Alonso de Aguila. Boabdil held a council in the Alhambra, whence the clouds of dust raised by Christian horsemen could be seen on the Vega. Some urged the futility of resistance, but Musa got up and bade them be true to their ancestors and never despair, while they had strong arms to fight and fleet horses wherewith to foray. The people caught Musa's enthusiasm, and there was nothing heard in Granada, but the sound of the furbishing of arms and the tramp of troops. Musa was in chief command, and the gates were in his charge. 
They had been barred when the Christian came in view, but Musa threw them open. Our bodies, he said, will bar the gates. The young men were kindled by such words, and when he told them, We have nothing to fight for but the ground we stand on, without that we are without home or country, they made ready to die with him. With such a leader, the Moorish cavaliers performed prodigious feats of valor in the plain which divided the city from the Christian camp. Single combats were of daily occurrence. The Moors would ride almost among the tents of the Spaniard and tempt some knights to the duel, from which he too often did not return. Ferdinand found his best warriors were being killed one by one, and he straightly forbade his knights to accept the Moors' challenge. It was hard for the Spanish chivalry to sit still within their tents, while a bold Moorish horseman would ride within hail and taunt them with cowardice, and when, at length, one of the Granadinos waxed so venturesome that he cast the spear almost into the royal pavilion, Hernando Perez de Pulga, surnamed he of the exploits, could no longer contain himself, but gathering a small band of followers, rode in the dead of night to a postern gate in the walls of Granada, and, surprising the guard, galloped through the streets till he came to the cheap mosque, which he forthwith solemnly dedicated to the blessed virgin, and in token of its conversion, nailed the label on the door inscribed with the words Ave Maria. Granada was awake by this time, and soldiers were gathering in every direction, but Pulga put spurs to his horse, and amid the amazement of the people, plunged furiously through the crowd, overturning them as he galloped to the gate, and fighting his way out, rode back in triumph to the camp. The Pulgas ever after held the right to sit in the choir of the mosque church during the celebration of high mass. Such feats of daring, however, did little to advance the siege, nor were the few engagements conclusive. Ferdinand renewed his old tactics. He sallied forth from his camp, which had accidentally been burnt to the ground, and proceeded to lay waste what remained of the fertility of the Vega. The Moors made the last desperate sally to save their field and orchard, and Musa and Boabdil fought like heroes at the head of their cavalry, but the foot soldiers, less steadfast, were beaten back to the gates, whither Musa sadly followed them, resolved never again to risk a pitched battle with such men behind him. It was the last fight of the Granadinos. For ten years they had disputed every inch of ground with their invaders. Wherever their feet could hold, they had stood firm against the enemy but now there was left to them nothing beyond their capital, and within its walls they shut themselves up in sullen despair. To starve them out was an agreeable task for the Catholic king, and following the precedent of the third Abderrahman in the siege of Toledo, he built in eighty days a besieging city over against Granada, and called it Santa Fe, in honor of his holy faith, and there to this day it stands, a monument of Ferdinand's resolution. Famine did the work that no mere valor could effect. The people of Granada implored Boabdil to spare them for the torture and make terms with the besiegers, and at last 
the unlucky king gave way. Musa would be no party to the surrender. He armed himself Kapapi, and mounting his charger rode forth from the city never to return. It is said that as he rode he encountered a party of Christian knights, half a score strong, and answering their challenge, slew many of them before he was unhorsed, and then, disdaining their offer of mercy, fought stubbornly upon his knees till he was too weak to continue the struggle, then with a last effort he cast himself into the river Chenil, and heavy with armor sank to the bottom. On the 25th of November, 1491, the act of capitulation was signed, and a term was fixed during which a truce was to be observed, after which, should no aid come from outside, Granada was to be delivered up to the Catholic majesties. In vain the Moors watched for a sign of the help they had sought from the sultans of Turkey and Egypt. No aid came, and at the end of December, Boabdil sent a message to Ferdinand to come and take possession of the city. The Christian army filed out of Santa Fe and advanced across the Vega, watched with mournful eyes by the unhappy Moors. The leading detachment entered the Arambra, and presently the great silver cross was seen shining from the summit of Torre de la Vela. Beside it floated the banner of St. James, while shouts of Santiago rose from the army in plain beneath. And lastly, the standard of Castile and Aragon was planted by the side of the cross. Ferdinand and Isabella fell on their knees and gave thanks to God. The whole army of Spain knelt behind them, and the royal choir sang a solemn tedium. At the foot of the hill of martyrs, Boabdil, attended by a small band of horsemen, met the royal procession. He gave Ferdinand the keys of Granada, and turning his back upon his beloved city, passed onto the mountains. There, at Padul, on a spur of Alpsharas, Boabdil stood and gazed back upon the kingdom he had lost. The beautiful Vega, the towers of Arambra, the garden of Generalife, all the beauty and magnificence of his lost home. Allahu Akbar, he said, God is most great, as he burst into tears. His mother Aisha stood beside him. You may well weep like a woman, she said, for what you could not defend like a man. The spot whence Boabdil took his sad farewell, look at his city from which he was banished forever, bears to this day the name of El Ultimo Sospiro del Moro, the last sigh of the Moor. He soon crossed over to Africa, where his descendants learned to beg their daily bread. There was crying in Granada when the sun was going down, some calling on the Trinity, some calling on Mahon. Here passed away the Koran, there in the cross was born, and here was heard the Christian bell, and there the Moorish horn. Te Deum Laudamus was up the Alcala song. Down from the Arambra's minaret were all the crescents flung. The arms thereon of Aragon they with Castile display. One king comes in, in triumph, one weeping goes away. Thus cried the weeper, while his hands his old white beard did tear. 
Farewell, farewell, Granada, thou city without peer. Woe, woe, thou pride of hiddendom, seven hundred years and more, have gone since the first faithful thy royal scepter bore. Thou wert the happy mother of a highly renowned race. Within thee dwelt a haughty line that now go from their place. Within thee fearless knights did dwell, who fought with mickle glee, the enemies of proud Castile, the bane of Christianity. Here gallants held it little thing for lady's sake to die, or for the prophet's honor and pride of soldanry. For here did valor nourish and deeds of warlike might, ennobled lordly palaces in which was our delight. The gardens of thy vega, its field and blooming bowers, woe, woe, I see their beauty gone and scattered all their flowers. No reverence can he claim, the king that such a land hath lost, on charger never can he ride, nor be heard among the host. But in some dark and dismal place, where none his face may see, their weeping and lamenting alone that king should be. End of chapter 13